Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of 2 Corinthians. We'll be discussing salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, not through works or traditions. So if you'll open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't we begin in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this group that you've given us that we can gather together every week and study your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. And we just ask that the Holy Spirit be present with us. We know the Holy Spirit's with us. Speak through me. Speak through others that speak up today. And just guide our discussion today in a way that changes us. We want to become more like Jesus Christ. And we know we can't do that on our own. It takes the Holy Spirit working in and through us. And we want to allow that to happen. We're asking, please, God, please change us. Change our hearts. Help us to reflect you to others that we encounter. Whatever we've done in the past or whatever people think about us in the past, let today be the first day of a new day that we're going to reflect you to those that we encounter. And we ask all this through your son Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And you'll recall where we left off. Paul has been sort of defending himself against these accusations from many of these false teachers. They're accusing Paul of all kinds of things, not being an apostle. They're accusing him of being arrogant. They're accusing him of doing everything really to bring glory to himself, that he's really not all about bringing glory to God. And then they've also been teaching that these false teachers, they've been teaching things like, well, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also have to do all these other things. So they sort of carried forward a lot of the Jewish traditions and teachings and things. They were saying, well, you have to do all of this as well and sort of earn your way. And we can look at that and say, well, gosh, why would the Jewish people think that? There's many denominations that claim to be Christian denominations that also say, yeah, you got to have faith in Jesus Christ, but then you got to do all these things to hopefully earn your salvation. And that's not biblical. And that's what Paul is addressing here. And we'll even see uh, as we study chapter three today, he's going to compare the old Mosaic covenant, the law that was given to Moses and he's going to compare that and contrast that to the new covenant that we have through Jesus Christ. And so why don't we begin? I'm going to start just where we left off in 2 Corinthians at the end of chapter 2. Just it will lead into what we're talking about a lot better. So let me start in verse 14 of chapter 2 where we left off last time. But thanks be to God who always leads us in the triumph in Christ and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? And he's going to actually address that question in our study today. And who is adequate for these things? He's basically saying, isn't it amazing that God would want to use us to minister to others? And he's going to talk about that because we are totally inadequate in and of ourselves. Let me now just go ahead and move into chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? What he's talking about here is it was customary back then for unknown Christians 
to carry these letters of recommendation from whatever church group that they had originated from to show their status within the church. That was sort of customary. And so they're sort of saying, well, Paul, where do you get your authority? You know, where are your letters? Where are the letters that would indicate that you have this status as an apostle? This is what the false teachers were accusing him of. So he's going to address that. He's going to say, hey, I don't need any stinking letters. My ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit working through me speaks for itself. He's going to basically say, look at the change that has occurred in your own hearts through this ministry. And it's not me. This is Paul talking. It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit working through me. That's where my authority comes from. I don't need any letters or, you know, I don't need to commend myself or I don't need to depend on some kind of secondhand testimony, you know, written down in a letter. Just look at my ministry. That's what he's going to say. Verse 2, he says, You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So he's saying, I don't need a letter. Just look at the way your hearts have changed through the ministry and through the teachings that I have passed on to you. He's saying, you Corinthian believers, you yourselves are evidence of the authority that I have because it's through the Holy Spirit working in me that has now changed your hearts. And so how in the world could you be believing these false teachers? You know, what have they done for you? And in fact, all they do is try to bring attention to themselves rather than really ministering to the Corinthians. Verse four, in such confidence we have through Christ toward God. So he's saying he has confidence that God has called him. Just watch the effectiveness of his ministry. And that's evidence of the Holy Spirit working in and through him. Now, in verse 5, he's going to actually answer the question that we saw last time that he asked up in chapter 2, verse 16. And who is adequate for these things? He's going to give the answer. Verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. So this confidence that Paul has, it's not self-confidence. It's confidence in God. It's God confidence that he has. He's saying, look, it's not my natural abilities. It's the Holy Spirit working in and through me. That's what makes me adequate. I'm not adequate on my own. Of course, the false teachers were the exact opposite of that. They were all about their own self-righteousness and their arrogance. And Paul's saying that, look, this is a new covenant that Jesus Christ has brought. And we're going to see it here shortly, but he's referring to Jeremiah 31, 31 in the Old Testament, where it talks about this new covenant that is going to replace the old Mosaic covenant, the law that was given to Moses by God. And we're going to take a look at that here in just a second. What Paul is saying is this new covenant it provides salvation through Christ. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you get this outpouring of the Holy Spirit to come in and change us and change our hearts. He's going to compare and contrast the old Mosaic covenant with the new covenant. So let me read these next couple of verses, and then I'm going to come back and we'll unpack it a little bit. 
Verse 7, but if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory, so he's talking about, remember the Ten Commandments engraved in stones, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, and I'm going to show you where that is, when Moses would go and talk to God, when he would come back and talk to the Israelites, his face would just be glowing and he would even start wearing a veil over his face. I'm going to show you those verses in just a second. Let me read on, then we'll come back. He says, because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Okay, so this is kind of hard to read. Let me try to unpack this a little bit. Hold your place here because we're going to come back. I'm going to show you a couple of verses and then try to walk you through the comparison that Paul is giving us between the old law, Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant. Go over to Exodus, go all the way back right after Genesis. I want you to go to the second book in the Bible, Exodus 34, chapter 34. And let me begin in verse 28. So he was there with the Lord. This is Moses. He was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hands as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, meaning the Lord. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him, meaning the Lord. Okay, and then I want to show you a couple of other verses. Go over to Hebrews. So go back to 2 Corinthians and then go to the right. You've got to go a bunch of books, but you'll find it eventually. You'll see Thessalonians and Timothy and Titus and just keep going. You're almost there. Go to Hebrews, and I want to go to Hebrews chapter 8, and I'm going to begin. Let me begin just in verse 1. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So this is Jesus. He's seated at the right hand of the Father a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. So he's talking about in heaven, not the tabernacle that Moses and the Israelites pitched for the presence of God back then when they were traveling all around after they had left Egypt. 
For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. That's what I was talking about, this place where there was a presence of God. God told Moses, See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So God said, make sure you build it in the way that I showed you on the mountain. Verse 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator. So no longer do you need the Levi priest to go and make sacrifices for you. Jesus Christ is our mediator. And he says he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant, meaning the law, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. So if the law would have been sufficient, and the law is good, don't get me wrong, the law is good, but the law never was going to bring us salvation. The law was there to point us to our need for a Savior. That was the purpose of the law. There was no way anybody was ever going to be able to live their life according to the standards of the law that was given. And so that was why we needed a a new covenant. And the new covenant is what enables us, through God's grace, to have our salvation. It's not by anything we do or anything we can earn. So now the writer in Hebrews is going to quote the new covenant out of Jeremiah 31, 31. Let me begin in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, meaning God, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, And I did not care for them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their inequities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Let me go back now over to Second Corinthians with that additional background, and let me try to explain these comparisons and contrasts that Paul is talking about in verses 7 through 11. What he's saying is the old covenant, the law, it brought death and it brought eternal condemnation. We see that in verse 7. It was engraved in stone, so it was this external thing. It was on the external. And in fact, that's what the Jews did. They turned the law into all this external tradition. Their hearts were a mess, but they thought they were righteous because they had Abraham's blood and because they did all these things. They did these religious tradition things that were outward signs to try to show everybody how righteous they were. But their hearts were a mess. 
And so the law, the Old Testament law, it was originally given to guide the Israelites to God's grace to show them that they needed a savior. But what they ended up doing is they turned away from God's grace and they, they turned Moses' law into a system of righteousness, of doing things on the external by works to try to show that they were righteous. There were all these mechanical rituals and observing of these sacraments as a way to earn salvation. And that's not biblical. And by the way, there's denominations that believe the same thing today. If you do these various things, well, then you can earn your salvation. And instead of sacraments being a way to glorify God, which there's nothing wrong with doing that. When you're doing things, just say, thank you, God. And I'm doing this to honor you and to worship you and to give thanks. And I recognize that I am nothing. I am nothing but for your grace. I am a sinner. I need a savior. So that's totally different from what we see even today in the Jewish religion, as well as, like I say, some denominations that it's, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus Christ, but then you got to do a whole bunch of other stuff too. And by the way, we'll let you know when you get there, if you did enough. And that's not biblical. It's not biblical. And that's what Paul is talking about here. It's entirely by God's grace. Some people turn this stuff into this legalism stuff. And if I do this, I'll earn blessings. And if I do this and that, you know, maybe I'll be good enough to be let in the door. And if you think anything you're going to do is going to get you there, you're going to be really disappointed. It's the ones who have a heart that Paul is talking about, that your heart, you realize you cannot get there on your own. The only thing we have to contribute to this whole thing is our need for a savior. There's no way we can get there on our own. Going back to the contrast. So it was engraved in stone. It was fading in glory. We see that in verses 8 and 11 here. Just like on Moses' face, he would be with God, but then there would be this fading glory. His face would fade after a while after he was away from God. Even the sacrifices they offered, they would get forgiveness by offering the sacrifice, but an hour later, they were probably sinning again. So it was just a temporary forgiveness. It was fading, and it was legalistic, and it really showed that nobody can keep the law. The law never saved anybody, never will. Only perfect person was Jesus Christ. He's the only one who lived his life perfect. Nobody else is able to do that. And you contrast that now, Paul does, to the new covenant, which the new covenant brings righteousness. It brings forgiveness. We see in verse nine, it provides for our eternal salvation. It's given of the Holy Spirit and it's written on our hearts. We see in verse eight. So it's an internal thing. It's not an external practicing of these things to try to earn our way. It's an internal change in our heart that we don't even bring about. It's brought about through the sanctification process. Once we place our faith in Jesus Christ, and we're given the Holy Spirit to come live in us and begin to change us. Are we perfect? No. Do we continue to sin? Absolutely. But if you look back over your life, you ought to see progress from the time you first became a Christian. You ought to see continued progress in that you are becoming a person who is more obedient and is more aware when you sin and feel bad about it and you ask for forgiveness. When you have unconfessed sin, once you become a Christian, you don't lose your salvation. But if you have unconfessed sin, it inhibits the Holy Spirit's ability to work in your life until you repent from that sin. So it's not a salvation thing as a Christian. 
but it has consequences to us here. And we need to repent and ask for forgiveness and then move on and let the Holy Spirit continue to work in our life. Another contrast is it has lasting glory. It's not going to fade. We see that. He references that in verses 8, 10, and 11. Our forgiveness is forever. Our salvation is forever. So it's not going to fade. And it's given by grace. We can't earn it. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings about the change in our hearts. So that's really the comparison and contrasting that Paul is talking about in these verses here. So let me pick back up with verse 12 now. Having therefore such a hope, and this hope that we have is for our forgiveness, our righteousness, our eternal salvation. By the way, hope doesn't mean, gee, I hope I might be wrong, but this is kind of what I'm hoping. No, the word hope as used here means like we're looking forward to it. We're anticipating it. We know it's going to happen. That's our hope. And Paul says having that kind of hope and this assurance of our salvation, we use great boldness in our speech and are not as Moses who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. So Paul is saying he freely and boldly proclaims the gospel even in the face of this persecution that he continued to have, even from these false teachers. And by the way, Satan loves to confuse us. These Corinthians, they were having a hard time, just like many people today. They were having a hard time putting off their old ways. They didn't want to move away from their traditions that they had been taught, that you needed to do this and you needed to do that. And, you know, if you don't do these various things well, then you're going to lose your salvation. They had a hard time letting go of that, thinking that they could earn their way. That's just not biblical. You're not going to earn anything from God. It even says the things that we do that we think are great, they're nothing but filthy rags in the sight of God. We can do nothing, but the Holy Spirit can do many wonderful works through us when we allow that to happen. And Satan loves to confuse us and start making us think that we have to earn our salvation and we got to do this and got to do that. That's just Satan trying to confuse us. And there are many, many, many who are confused, even many who profess to be Christians who are confused about this. And let's see what Paul says about folks that are like that. He's going to talk about this veil. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. So he's saying, even this day, when the Jewish people would read the law and the old, you know, all the traditions and everything that they had made up and added to it, they just have a veil over them that keeps them from being able to understand God's grace in the new covenant. This veil remains because until they acknowledge Jesus Christ is the Son of God who was given as a free gift to come and die for our sins and we place our faith in Him and that's how we obtain our salvation and our forgiveness of sin and our promise of eternal life. Until you do that, he says, the veil is going to remain. It can only be removed by Jesus Christ. That's what it says. Verse 14, because it is removed in Christ. Verse 15, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, meaning the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, whenever it's read, a veil lies over their heart. You see, so these unbelieving Jews, their hearts, they can't see the truth. It remains covered by this veil. Their minds are clouded and they believe in their own self-righteousness. They believe by just doing these outward things, even though their hearts are a mess, 
they believe that just doing these outward things are what is going to earn their salvation. And they're just totally confused. Let me go back to 15. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over what? Their heart. You see? Their heart. Their heart is clouded. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So when you repent and you turn to the Lord, that's when the veil is taken away by Jesus Christ. And we begin to be changed. And the glory of God becomes highly visible to us. And the Holy Spirit shines through us to show others to Christ. So when you acknowledge that you're unworthy, you're an unworthy sinner, you're in need of a Savior, that's when God's grace comes, lifts the veil, and that's when we're forgiven of our sins and we're assured of eternal life and the Holy Spirit is given to us to help begin to change us. Verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So we get this tremendous freedom when we become Christians. We're no longer bound by the law. Our sins have been forgiven, past, present, future. What freedom, what peace that we're given. And then Jesus sends us the Holy Spirit to live in us. And so we're free of guilt. I mean, we ought to be so thankful of that. It's just incredible. Verse 18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So we're going through this process, the sanctification process, through the rest of our life. From the moment we become Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit to come live in us, begin to change us. It says here in 18, we're being transformed into the same image, just as from the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We just have to acknowledge, I think most people on this call have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and realize this process that we're going through now. And it is amazing. It's such an honor. I've shared this with you before. I'm not saying this to bring glory to myself. I'm just passing this along to you. I mean, I couldn't prepare for these lessons without the Holy Spirit. Every time I put these lessons together every week, I learned something new. I might have read this text 20, 30 times before. And there's always something new here that the Holy Spirit says, okay, now you're ready for me to reveal this to you. And it's just so humbling and just such an honor to see the Holy Spirit working in my own life. And I hope that you can reflect as you think about this lesson today, all the evidence that is in your life of the Holy Spirit working in your life to change you or to help work through you to point others to Christ, either believers who are struggling or non-believers. When you feel the Holy Spirit working in you in that way, there is nothing that brings more joy than that. And that's why we're left here anyway. I want to show you one more verse, and then let me summarize and then open it up for questions and comments. If you'll flip over to Philippians, again, and this will be Paul speaking, just go over to the right, several books. Just keep going. You'll find it eventually. It's after Ephesians. Just keep going. You'll find it. And I want you to go to Philippians 3, and let me jump in at verse 12. Again, this is Paul talking. He says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Let me continue on. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. 
So this press on, when you look at the original Greek, it actually is translated, it's like pursuing prey. That's this pursuit Paul has. He's pressing on. He's pursuing it. And it's this sanctification process. He's pursuing to become more Christ-like. And that isn't something we do. That's something the Holy Spirit does in us. He says, forget what lies behind. Forget about the things that you've done in the past. Satan is going to use that against you all the time. I know we all go through this. I know I do. Some sin that I did decades ago all of a sudden pops in my head. It's like, where did that come from? And that's Satan just trying to say, you know what? Maybe you're not even a Christian. Maybe you just think you are. How could somebody like you truly be a Christian as bad as you are? And I've gotten to where now my answer to that is I say, Satan, thank you for reminding me that Jesus Christ died for that sin. It's been nailed to the cross. I've been forgiven. And I appreciate you pointing that out to me so I can say, thank you, Jesus Christ, and bring glory to Je-. And let me tell you, Satan does not like hearing that. And that thought goes away. So try it sometime. By way of summary, I think we're all called to proclaim the gospel and at least minister to others in some way. We talk about that in this class all the time. I ask each of you to think about how you might minister to somebody in the coming year. Just one person, one person that you know or that maybe you haven't talked to in many, many years. How could the Holy Spirit work in and through you in a way to help somebody else? Just one person this year. I hope that you'll pray about that. I promise you, you will find tremendous joy when you allow the Holy Spirit to work in and through you as an instrument to minister to others. Just to have confidence that the Holy Spirit can do it. I mean, that's God living in you. You may say, well, I'm not capable. I haven't been trained. I don't know how to. You know what? You've got God, God of the universe living inside of you. Trust me. You can do it. And just from attending this Bible study, many of you for many, many years, you know a whole lot more than most other people. And you can help others. And so I just ask that you really give that some serious thought. So let me open it up for any questions or comments or how we might apply what we've read today to our lives as we go forward. Larry, it seems to me this bit at the end about the veil, there's almost a literal reading of that in today's environment as we sit here with the face coverings and you think about all the fear and anxiety and division and strife and political discord and all of these things, but the answer is right here, just turn to Jesus and you'll have that, you'll, you'll be indwelled in the Spirit and you'll have that peace. And the metaphorical and eventually the literal veil will be lifted. That's awesome. That's really good, especially with all these masks we're having to wear now and we've got this veil. I love this part though, in 18, with an unveiled face, we look in the mirror and we begin to see not our glory, but the Holy Spirit working in our lives to change us. It's pretty amazing. Larry, I appreciate the way that you, you know, are humble and uh, give glory to God for your effectiveness. I just appreciate the way that you give us encouragement to act and obey and rely on the Spirit and be bold in our faith. Use that to bless other people, and I appreciate that. You know, I, I think that we've learned in this Bible study to about the Holy Spirit and how to rely on the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit use us. And uh, I think that's great. I appreciate that. And I've been blessed. I don't struggle with a judgmental attitude towards other people. I find it easy to not worry about what other people have done. But the enemy seems to want me to judge myself on mistakes I've made or 
when I made a fool of myself. And I just, so I, I appreciate your encouragement this morning to forget that and move on, be positive. Yeah, whatever we've done yesterday, that was yesterday. Question is, what are we going to do today and tomorrow? That's the real question. And you know, I don't know why this is popping in my head. It's one of my favorite quotes. People will never remember what you said, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Regardless of what you've even said to people, maybe that was inappropriate, family members or friends or whatever, somebody at work or somebody in the past, they're probably not even going to remember exactly what you said, but they're going to remember how you made them feel, which maybe wasn't so good. And that can be changed. That can be changed. You can reach out to somebody and you can totally change that feeling that they had just by showing them how much you truly care. And maybe you're sorry for the way the relationship ended up. Maybe there's somebody out there. I don't know why this came into my head, but maybe there's somebody that needed to hear that today. That maybe there's somebody that you need to reach out to. Maybe that's the person that you need to reconcile with in the coming year. Hey, Larry, it's dumbfounding to me how he makes it crystal clear that if you put your faith in Christ, the Spirit is in your heart, and yet you have all these denominations that still believe that you have to earn your way to heaven. How do they justify that if they read the Bible? How do they justify that it's just through God's grace and not through works? It's just dumbfounding to me. Well, part of the problem is many of those denominations that believe that, they don't read the Bible. That maybe is stronger than it needed to be. What I mean by that is they don't spend time actually studying the Bible and allowing the Holy Spirit to teach them what God's Word actually says. All right? It's more sort of like you see with the Israelites. It's traditions. It's things that have been handed down. It's this is what I was taught. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I talked to. And look, I was the same way. There were things that I was taught in my family religion that were just not biblical. But that's what I was taught. Now, I've even had family members that I've talked to, and they've said, well, that isn't what I was taught. And I said, okay, so you got two options. You can go with what you were taught. And this is where many, many Jewish people have a problem. It's like, you're asking me to go away from generations and generations and generations have believed this, that Jesus is not really God's son, whatever. Now I'm talking about people who profess to be Christians, but their theology is a little messed up because of what they were taught, okay? That's why I go, you got two options. You can go with what you were taught, or you can actually go and open up this book that I happen to believe is God's Word. And I believe that it is God's Word speaking to us, and it's infallible, and it's perfect. And so you can either go with what some people who maybe you even respect, highly respect, but that's what they taught you, or you can go read this book. And I would suggest to you maybe spend some time in this book, and if it's contrary to what you were taught, maybe you ought to go with what God is telling you. That's all I can say. I have had many, many people say, I'm so glad that you've shown this to me in the Bible because nobody's ever shown that to me before. I mean, I get that response so often. You know, I don't care where you go to church. I don't care what building you go to. I don't think God cares what building you go to. It's your heart and what you believe. That's what God wants is your heart. So I'm not trying to tell people don't go. If you're comfortable going to XYZ church or whatever, but I would also caution you, what are they teaching you? If they're teaching you things that when you go study the Bible, 
and you see it's contrary to what is actually written in this book, I would seriously question if you're at the right place. And that's between you and God. I don't care where you go to church. But let's get back to this is what Jesus railed on, these traditions that have been handed down, traditions, traditions, external things. Jesus railed on the Jewish leaders about it. This is what Paul's talking about here. There's so many places in the Bible that talk about don't get confused by these traditions and things that have been handed down that might not be accurate. If they're supported by the Bible, by all means, do them. I don't know if that was helpful. I kind of carried on a bit. Yeah, that was helpful. There are many times that some will say, well, this is what I was taught. And so I'll say, okay, let's go with that. Show me where that is in the Bible. And there's just like silence. What, what, do, you, what do you mean? I mean, this is what I was taught. Yeah, that's fine. Just show me where it says that in the Bible. And then I'll say, well, would you mind? Can I show you actually what God says about that topic? Well, yeah, show it to me. And then I've had some say, well, you're reading out of your Bible. And I go, well, then go get your Bible. You know, sometimes they'll have a family Bible that has never been opened. They got to dust it off. I say, okay, let's read out of your Bible, which, by the way, the same, but it'd feel more comfortable with me reading out of your Bible. Okay, let's do that. And then they say, oh my gosh, nobody's ever shown that to me before. So that's all you have to do. I encourage you to have those conversations, not in an argumentative or judgmental way, in a loving way. Because at the end of the day, it's about understanding God's grace. I don't get as hung up. If somebody wants to talk about some of the other issues around theology and what have you, I'll be happy to have that conversation. But the main thing I try to at least get people to understand is God's grace. It's God's grace that we are saved. If you think you're going to earn your way, then let's really have a discussion about that. But let's get God's grace right. One of my favorite verses is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. It's God's grace that we are saved. The other things that, you know, various denominations believe and what have you, I, I'm not going to get as, I'm happy to talk to you about it and try to show you why I believe what I believe. But the foundation part of God's grace is so important. Let's just get that right. Larry, again, sorry, I'm, another observation that I've had, I went to a Jewish funeral a couple of years ago, and as they're reading from the Torah and they're going through all their ritualistic stuff, it was like a dead there was no life. There was no joy. It was just rote reading, and it really had an impact on me, you know, because I would have thought that this funeral of a really respected good man, you just walked out of there with this empty feeling in your heart of, wait a minute, you don't feel that spirit lifting you up and going, oh, that was a fantastic moving service. It's just that rote. I had an empty feeling when I left the synagogue. It was very impactful for me. Anyway, and this, this sort of conversation that we had this morning about the glory of the new covenant and joy and the spirit, it just had a profound impact on me. Anyway, I just thought I'd share that observation. I had the same thing. I had one of my best friends' father passed away, and they're Jewish, and I went to the funeral, and they happened to not even believe that there's any afterlife. Okay, say believe when you die, life's over, you're dead, you're annihilated, it's over. And I walked out of there, and he was a great man, just one of the nicest people you'd ever want to be around. And yet this funeral, it celebrated what a wonderful person.
person he was here, but they basically said, but that's it. It's over. It was great that he was here, but now that's over. There's nothing. And I left, just how you describe, I left there going, I, I felt sick at my stomach. It was like, oh my gosh, that is just so sad. So sad. So at the same time, if we've got any friends, I'd take you back to that dream slash nightmare I had many years ago. The dream was I was in line, I died, I was getting ready to go through the gates of heaven, and I looked over, there was another line on the other side of this big valley abyss that I couldn't cross over, but I could see people, and people were yelling my name, Larry, 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 and I noticed it was friends and family. Thank God when I woke up, I don't remember who they are but they were close friends and family. And they said, why didn't you tell us what we needed to do while we were alive so we could be in that same line with you? And that dream, while it's, I know it's not biblical, it has had an impact on me. It's like, man, there ain't anybody, I, I don't wanna have anybody I know that doesn't at least say, I tried to tell you between you and God, but I don't want you over in that line over there telling me, why didn't you say something? Something to think about. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this podcast and my weekly blog by sending a text to 56316, type Larry in the text box, and hit send. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.